Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, guest hosted by award-winning author Carrie Knowles, we visit in the land down under with Gina Wilkinson, award-winning journalist, foreign correspondent, and documentary filmmaker, whose debut novel is When the Apricots Bloom. Inspired by her own experiences while stationed in Baghdad during Saddam Hussein's rule, former foreign correspondent Gina Wilkinson's evocative debut is told through the eyes of three very different women in Iraq at the turn of the millennium. A secretary, an artist, and a diplomat's wife, each must confront the complexities of trust, friendship, and motherhood under the rule of a dictator and his ruthless secret police. Susan Wiggs, number one New York Times bestselling author, calls the book a deeply involving an important novel by a master storyteller. Gina Wilkinson highlights the humanity and the center of a brutal conflict. She brings her lived experience to every page of this harrowing, dramatic, and ultimately hopeful book. Gina says through her two decades of living in hotspots across the globe, she's found that while we might pray in a certain way, cover our hair or not, bake our bread flat or leavened, at heart we all want the same things. Safety, peace, love. We share far more in common than that which divides us. Listeners, this episode is part of our guest hosted series made up mostly of authors who have appeared on the podcast and who support us on Patreon. And today, uh, Carrie Knowles, as I said, is going to be conducting uh, this interview. When she's finished, uh, when she's finished with this fascinating interview, uh, 
all the way across the world to Australia with uh, Gina Wilkinson. We're going to jump over to our Patreon page where Carrie and I are going to interview Gina together on a fascinating topic based on her experience, the writing trifecta, journalism, book link, narrative, nonfiction, and fiction. But now I'm going to turn the audio steering wheel over to Carrie Knowles, have her welcome Gina and uh, take it away. Gina, I'm so delighted to meet you um, and uh, have an opportunity to talk about this book. You know, readers always want to know, where did this story come from? Why did you write the story? And I think that I would like to know a little bit more about your experience in Iraq and uh, just what sparked this fire that made you want to tell this story. And it takes a fire to write a novel. It really does take a fire. So let's hear some more about that. Sure. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, so looking at what inspired me to write When the Apricots Bloom, uh, way back in 2002, I was working as a foreign correspondent living in Bangkok, Thailand. And uh, I was living there with my husband. He's actually Canadian and he had moved to from Canada to Australia for my job and then he'd moved from Australia to Thailand for my job and he was offered a posting in Baghdad working for UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. Uh, that was about a year or so before the start of the Iraq war. And this may seem um, very hard to believe, but at that time we were told it was going to be um, – this is the exact words that we used, a very boring posting. And uh, that's because uh, Saddam Hussein had such a tight grip over the country. Um, he was a really ruthless dictator, so very little happened there without his say-so. And at the same time, Iraq was pretty much completely cut off from the outside world um, as a result of the sanctions that were imposed after the Gulf War. So you couldn't fly in and out of Baghdad. Uh, there were no rail lines. There was no internet. Uh, the phone only worked sporadically, no foreign TV. There were very, very few Westerners allowed in the country. Uh, but, you know, my husband had been following me around the world for quite a long time, and this was quite a good opportunity for him. And I've got to admit, as a journalist, I was intrigued by the idea of going to Baghdad. It's, you know, a an amazingly historic city uh, with a lot of culture um, and I guess the fact that it was sealed off from the outside world, that sort of piqued my interest and it has been at the forefront uh, of so many um, pivotal moments in history, both ancient and modern. Uh, the only uh, real complicating factor at that time was that Saddam Hussein did not allow foreign journalists to live in Iraq. So I decided that I would just um, put my journalism career on hold and go in there under the, the horrible visa category of dependent spouse. So I, which was, uh, you know, a, a turnabout for me. Um, so I went in uh, under that category and, you know, pretty much exactly as we crossed the border, um, George Bush uh, gave his uh, axis of evil speech and it quickly became apparent that it wasn't going to be anything like a boring posting, that the situation was actually going to become uh, quite volatile and dangerous. And very soon after I arrived, I was befriended by a local woman who I later discovered was actually working as an informant for the regime secret police and was reporting back pretty much on my every move. And, you know, I should say straight up, I do not blame her for that. Uh, in 
Iraq if the secret police wanted you to do something. Uh, saying no wasn't really an option. Uh, but throughout the years, I've always wondered, you know, was it just a job for her or were parts of our friendship actually real? And uh, when I started trying to write When the Apricots Bloom, I tried to imagine what it would have been like for someone like her, um, beginning with the moment that uh, the secret police arrive at the door of an Iraqi secretary's home. Uh, she's working for a foreign embassy and they tell her that she has to befriend her boss's wife in order to try and get any inside information. Um, so the story that develops from that point on is fiction, but the seed of the novel, the idea of the novel came from that real life experience. So in a lot of ways, you're Allie in the book. That's the perspective that you had was being the, the tag-along spouse, which is an interesting position, especially somebody who's been a correspondent and been a, a high-level journalist. It must have been hard not to take those notes about what was going on. Yeah, well, you know, um, again, I'd say the starting point is similar. I'd say my position inspired that character. Uh, you know, I was a journalist like Ali, but in contrast to Ali, um, you know, I, I felt some of the isolation and loneliness when I first arrived because, you know, there were there was basically no other uh, dependent spouse in uh, Baghdad. Um, but I actually soon went out and uh, got myself a part-time job. I studied Arabic every day and uh, one big difference is that um, under Saddam Hussein, I did not go around poking into sensitive matters like the character of Ali does. You know, um, when I got there, um, I had a security briefing and I was told, um, you should as assume your home is bugged. You should assume the office is bugged. Um, if you have anything sensitive to say, uh, you know, if you have, want to discuss anything with your husband in private, go for a walk. Make sure you're outside where there's no power source for a microphone. Uh, so I knew that I was being monitored and that I was being watched. I didn't realise that it was by one of my uh, closest friends, but I was aware of that. So I was always very careful not to go around poking into sensitive matters like the character of Ali um, does. I guess she's a bit more naive in that respect. Um, you know, I was connected to the United Nations with, with UNICEF. And so that gave me a sort of protection from the regime that my local friends and colleagues didn't have. So I was very careful not to do anything, you know, under Saddam Hussein that I thought might put my friends um, at risk. And, you know, in terms of, um, you know, being a journalist, I did uh, like keep a sort of a diary, more like notes, of things I observed, but I never used any of my friends' real names when I did the notes. I just would put X said blah, blah, or Y said, you know, la, la, la. Um, and I was pretty cryptic in my um, note-taking. Um, you know, about a week after I got to Baghdad, um, I worked out that the secret police had actually been inside my home. I had a address book that I had kept for 20 years that I put in a slot next to the telephone. Uh, the telephone rarely worked, so the, the address book didn't get used very often. And a week after I arrived, it was gone. And I turned that house inside out. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that they probably turned up and they, I'm sure they had a key and came in and took it. Um, so, you know, maybe I was paranoid, maybe not, but 
I was worried about them accessing my laptop if I wasn't at home. So I was really very careful not to do anything. And also, you know, I didn't have any classified information. I didn't have access to any sensitive secrets. Um, So I didn't really have anything to hide. Um, But it was, you know, weird, that experience of knowing you're being you're being watched and monitored and, and not quite sure what you can say and what you can't. So I tried to err on the side of caution. Right. I, I found it fascinating and also knowing that you had been there and had that experience. And I, I have to say, I, I loved how you chose three very different women, um, you know, uh, who had different positions in the society. So it gave us a layered look as to what was going on. Um, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the character of, is it Huda? Yes, Huda. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to make sure sometimes with the, you know, I had a character once and everybody mispronounced her name. I just want to make sure that I got that right. Um, I, I was fascinated. She seemed to me to be the connection between the old Iraq and the new Iraq and her grandmother who read the coffee grounds and that she maintained that position in the community there. Talk a little bit about the role of Huda. Yeah, so Huda, um, the character, as you know, we mentioned early was earlier, was inspired by my friend who was an informant. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's not her, obviously, it's a fictional character, but I did, you know, draw on some of her, I guess, um, personality traits. Uh, and um, I found Iraqi women in general to be uh, very uh, warm. Uh, they had a good sense of humour. I'm generalising here, of course, but, um, you know, they weren't wallflowers. Uh, you know, I think uh, sometimes in the West we have um, preconceptions of how women in the Middle East uh, are behave or their personalities or their positions of power in their various relationships at home and in the workplace. And, you know, Iraqi women um, are very highly educated in, in general. Um, I had a lot of friends that were engineers, lawyers, doctors, uh they drove themselves around, uh, they held positions in government, they had a lot of power. Uh, in fact, um, one of the names for a housewife, even at home, is um, goddess of the house. So they, you know, they're not uh, shrinking, shrinking violets. And I wanted to sort of show that, um, that some of those stereotypes um, that are out there aren't necessarily true. And um, I had friends in Iraq from a wide range of backgrounds, people who came from very humble backgrounds and were able to um, work, uh, you know, work hard, make um, a better life for themselves. I had friends that came from very distinguished backgrounds who, for a variety of reasons, ended up being quite um, impoverished and... um, you know, living in very different circumstances than what they were used to and everything in between. So I wanted to show that and also look at the different power that the, the characters had when negotiating with the Mukhabarat, the secret police. So Huda comes from a very humble background. She didn't have really any leverage with the um, secret police and um, due to events in her past, even less, I guess, than many people. Uh, whereas um, there's another character called Rania, 
who is a an artist, she occupies a different sort of space. She's a sheikh's daughter. She knows um, Huda from childhood. Uh, Huda was part of her father's tribe. So uh, Rania now uh, is fairly um, cash-strapped, has to sell off a lot of her treasured possessions. Um, this was a common thing in Iraq. You would see amazing things being sold off um, because people didn't have an income. But uh, because of her background, she is able to negotiate more with the secret police in terms of what she tells them, the respect that they give her, her leeway. And also um, one thing I wanted to show in the book was Iraq's amazing art scene. You know, when I got there, I was um, delighted to find that there were about two dozen independent galleries operating in Baghdad. And, you know, through the millennia, artists have always been this sort of conduit between the outside world and the inside society of Iraq. And so artists had a little bit more leeway in dealing with foreigners than ordinary Iraqis did. You know, an ordinary Iraqi like the character Huda would have had to be very careful about being seen in public with a foreigner. You know, most of my friends in real life didn't want to be seen with me in public because it would attract the wrong sort of attention, um, whereas artists have always had that contact with foreigners. And there's a great deal of respect in Iraq for artists, for writers, for philosophers. And so they have this standing that allowed them under Saddam Hussein to have a little bit more freedom, but also at the same time, a little bit more risk because they were in this sort of great grey zone. Um, Saddam, in a way, was uh, a huge, I would not sure patron of the arts is the correct word, but he was, he had um, there were so many murals, you know, it was a full-time business pumping out art for him. And uh, in fact, uh, it was said uh, that there were um, 5 million statues and paintings of, of Saddam in Baghdad, uh, one for every person in the city. So, you know, they came into contact with him and his apparatus as well. So I wanted to look at those different relationships of how someone from a humble background, um, how they dealt with the pressure upon them compared to someone from a from a more, I guess, distinguished or um, aristocratic in a way background, um, how they managed to negotiate um, dealing with the secret police. Yeah. And I and also there's a lot of uh, you have the secret police and all three of these women have secrets as well. The the theme of secrets is very strong in this book. And the secrets are both um, things that need to be protected and they're things that uh, make them vulnerable to what's going on. And it was interesting to see how the three different women managed those secrets. So I was very interested in the relationship of men and women in the book. And uh, I'd like you to read a section in which uh, Huda's husband confronts her with what she's doing with Allie and who is Allie. And at this point, I think in the book, it's unclear as to how much he knows about her being an informant and what that's going to mean for them in the future. So I think it's a very interesting passage. If you read that, that would be great. 
Sure, sure. This takes place um, very early in the book. Um, the secret police have just come to Huda's home and told her that she has to be an informant and she's had a bit of an argument with her husband and he's, he's he, so he wasn't there. He'd gone off to the, to the tea shop to sort of sulk and she was at home alone when the secret police turned up. So she's just told him that uh, they want her to make friends with, with Ali. What do you know about this woman? Ali seems nice enough, mumbled Huda, but it can't be long before she packs up and returns home. The heat and the sun always prove too much for the embassy wives. And the loneliness too, thought Huda. She remembered meeting Ali a month ago at the end of her 10-hour drive from Jordan to Baghdad. The young woman had stumbled from the embassy land cruiser, hand raised to ward off the sun, legs wobbling like a sailor stepping ashore after months at sea. All the way here, I kept looking for white sand dunes and camel trains, laughed Ali awkwardly. No one had the heart to tell her that was some other country. Huda remembered when women like Ali had flocked to Baghdad, British nurses, French school teachers, and the plump wives of American oilmen. Tourists filled the cafes and strolled the banks of the Tigris. But nowadays, the expats were gone. So were the tour buses. The rail line to Istanbul was severed and NATO jets shot down any planes that entered Iraqi airspace. These days, only a handful of diplomats and United Nations workers ventured through the wide western desert to Baghdad. Very rarely did their wives join them, and like the exotic parrots at Al Ghazal Pet Market, the women soon went off their food, drooped and plucked out their own feathers. Then they disappeared back into the desert pale-skinned gypsies in four-wheel drive caravans, leaving nothing behind but a trail of dust and perhaps a forgotten sun hat. Eventually, their husbands were posted elsewhere and life resumed happily. At least Huda assumed it was happily. It was almost impossible to stay in touch with those outside Iraq's borders. Unwise even to embark on such friendships in the first place. What is she like, this Ali? Abdul Amir paced back and forth. Is she one of those arrogant foreigners who knows nothing of history and believes her all savages? Huda shook her head. I, d I don't think so. Will it be difficult to befriend her? The moon slid behind a cloud. Huda was glad of the darkness. I don't know, she lied. Ali wasn't standoffish at all, and Huda sensed it would be easy to draw her close. Until this evening, Huda had thought she could handle the obligatory visits from the Mukhabarat. She kept her answers brief, but true, and made it a rule to avoid gossip. She was only a secretary. She had nothing to hide. Besides, her Australian bosses weren't fools. They told their Iraqi staff only what they were happy for the government also to know. The rest they kept to themselves. Huda remembered depositing her first embassy paycheck and how the bank clerk's eyes widened when he saw her salary. His usual sneer disappeared. He called her Madam for the first time and asked if she'd like tea while he processed the cheque. She'd relished that moment far more than she cared to admit. Now the strings attached to her job drew tight around her neck. Abdul Amir stopped pacing back and forth across the lawn. Did Abu Isa offer you money, he said. Money? Huda frowned. Of course not. No one gets rewarded for answering their questions. Let's be honest, they want more than that, much more. He ripped a prickly thistle from the lawn. I heard sometimes they pay informants. 
Huda tasted the sour gas from the refineries on her tongue. I am not an informant. You wanted the embassy job, Abdulamir snorted. You wanted to work with foreigners. Did you not consider there might be a price to pay? Huda had thought she was so smart that she could type a few letters, take the foreigners' money and manage the Mukhabarat too. She'd ignored the voice inside her whispering, you're playing with fire. She searched her husband's face. His eyes were nothing but shadows. Have I not paid enough already? She asked. Wonderful. Thank you. Very interesting. I, I love the being in the garden and that interchange. Um, do people normally, you know, again, take us back to Iraq. Let us see it a little bit more from your perspective of having been there. Do people have these wonderful gardens? Is this something that uh, everyone does? Yeah, yeah. I did actually draw on that from uh, real life. Um, I would occasionally go to my friends' houses, just occasionally because we didn't want to draw too much um, attention to them. So we tried to meet in sort of neutral spots. Um, but they did have beautiful gardens. Uh, a lot of Iraqi life when I was there did take place at home. Um, and that's in big contrast to, say, in, in the 70s and the 60s, which is a part of um, Iraqi history that I revisit a lot in the book because the character of Ali, her mother, worked there as a nurse during that period. And that's a time that Iraqis often hark back to. They call that the golden years. And that's when Baghdad was considered the most cosmopolitan city in the Middle East. I remember one of my friends telling me about how he used to water ski on the Tigris um, past uh, foreigners picnicking on the banks, that sort of thing. Um, but over the years, uh, you know, people retreated more and more indoors, um, I guess because of the influence of the regime. Uh, you did want to protect yourself and you wanted to make your surroundings uh, beautiful. And so people did spend a lot of time at home working in their gardens. And for the character of Abdul Amir, Huda's husband, he is an unemployed financial analyst. Uh, you know, there are a lot of highly educated Iraqis who lost their job as a result of the deteriorating economy after the Gulf War and the sanctions. And, um, you know, gardening, I think Perhaps many people have experienced this also um, during the pandemic. It can be therapeutic when you're stuck at home. You can't go out. Uh, it might be unsafe to go out. You can pour a lot of your anxiety into your garden. You can control it in a way. Uh, you can make beautiful things. You can make it productive. You can have food. And so um, I try to show it as a place of refuge and for um the character of Abdul Amir, Huda's husband, I feel like for him, he had lost a lot of, you know, his own confidence. Uh, he felt like, you know, he wasn't in control of his world anymore. And that was a way that he could be in control, even if it was just in his own backyard. Right. I, you know, I get the sense, and I also like the interplay of uh, things behind the garden wall are hidden. So there's a hidden life and a public life, and that that's a lot of what gets protected throughout the book is what's hidden, what's personal, and what's public, which is very, very nicely done. Um, were you able to keep in contact with the person that became your friend? 
uh, my my um, friend slash um, informant. Mother. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we didn't stay friends. Um, it was, uh, you know, she's the basis of the story. But I guess in real life, none of us are as, I guess. Um, you know, our fictional characters can be the best sides of us. Uh, or the worst. She, yeah, she, yeah. She um, is a little bit probably more complicated than even the, the character in the novel and our relationship was a lot more um, complicated because I did suspect that something was going on. Um, she, the, my real-life character, there was tension in our relationship. I thought she had a great sense of humour. Uh, she was willing to be seen with me in public, which I guess should have set off alarm bells, and, in fact, it did on occasion, and I'd be told, oh, you're being crazy. But, you know, there was tension because she tried to control a lot of what I did, who I spoke to, where I went. So when her contract was up, she lost her job, and she came to me asking if I could help her find another job. So I went to see her boss and I was like, you know, what's go- what going on? This seems so weird. Why would you get w- rid of her now? And he confirmed what I had actually suspected, um, that she had been working as an informant. We had l- arranged a lunch together and she made some comments about if I didn't get her a job, um, basically threatening um, you know, I, I interpret it as a threat. Maybe it was a job, a joke, but, uh, you know, just prior to that, my former workplace at the United Nations Oil for Food program had been destroyed in a suicide bombing. Uh, my very close friend, her former boss, um, died in that and 22 of my other colleagues. And so I guess I wasn't, um, I didn't interpret it if it was a joke as a joke, comments about, you know, you won't be safe. Um, if your husband doesn't help me get a job, he w- won't be safe for him to come back to Iraq. He'd been evacuated along with the rest of the UN staff. Um, so I just decided not to say anything. I guess I chickened out. Um, there was another time a few years later where I wanted to talk to her about it um, and my other Iraqi friends asked me not to say anything. You know, after after the war with America, you know, the traditional power structures broke down and there were a lot more dangerous actors. And my friend said to me, you know, once upon a time, we knew, we, the Iraqis knew who the informants were, but now we don't know who's working for who. We don't know if they're working for someone, who they're working for, how dangerous these people might be that they're connected with. So please don't say anything because if she knows, you know, then she'll probably know that we know too. Um, And, you know, my personal desire to resolve the situation, um, to, you know, clear the air, I felt like that was a small thing compared to my Iraqi friend's feeling of security. So I didn't say anything. Um, but I am in touch with um, other people who inspired characters in this book. I'm still in contact um, with some great Iraqi artists. Um, And in fact, three of my close Iraqi friends uh, from that period helped me with fact-checking for this book. Um, You know, I wanted to get the details um, right, make sure I didn't have any of my own preconceptions or stereotypes sort of spill out onto the page. Um, So that was very important for me. And the three of them um, read read the entire manuscript and uh, have actually helped me in the past as well with with um, a book I wrote 
many years ago. Um, so, you know, even after almost 20 years, we're still friends. And, you know, I, as a journalist, I often have interviewed um, veterans and they talk about, you know, the friendships that they made in combat and how um, they were, even though they might have only known someone for a short period of time, those friendships can be so pivotal and important in your life. And I feel like uh, I don't want to compare myself to a veteran, but I was there under wartime, before wartime, during war, uh, we lost friends together. you know, that sort of experience of any sort of tragedy, not just necessarily war, but if you're involved in a tragedy alongside someone, it is a bond that is very strong. Um, You know, it's a painful, painfully, you know, forged, but it is something strong that can keep you together. Um, And that's been the case. We've managed to stay in contact when I left Iraq, there was no functioning phone still. There was no internet. And yet still, um, 20 years later, we are in contact, thanks, I guess, to social media, um, Facebook and the internet and emails. We can stay in contact. And I'm really grateful for that um, because, you know, one thing I wanted to try and show in this book, um, especially uh, is the strength of Iraqi women and um I found my Iraqi women friends so inspiring. Um, I mentioned that time, um, the bombing of the UN and the death of my close friend. Uh, I went in to see some Iraqi friends and they had just had a painting made of him, a portrait that they wanted to hang in the office. And they just passed it to me. You know, I wasn't expecting it. And, you know, I started crying and I remember they came over to me and they said, you know, you can cry now, but you have to keep going. You have to pull yourself together and you have to be strong. Uh, You have to be strong for him. And that's something that they always did. They were so um, resilient without being bitter. And I find that such an admirable quality and I really wanted to show that in um, the book that that great resilience that I found among my Iraqi um, friends, that ability to keep going um, to overcome those the sort of experiences that they have um, without you know losing their own sense of joy and warmth and um, yeah I hope that's something that people will take away from it. Oh, I think definitely. I think that that's one of the most powerful things about the book is that these three different women who are very different all sort of have in their core is this sense of resilience, not only resilience, but survival. You know, they're able to know this is what I need to do in order to survive. This is what I need to do to protect my children. And it's a it's a focus and a strength and an intelligence that really rings true in the book. And I think that that's one of the things that comes out. I was so impressed by the book in terms of, you know, even though it's set in Iraq and even though it's set in a time that, um, you know, I may not be able to understand on the same level that you do because I've never been there. I was able to see within those three characters um, other people that I know. And I think that those characters that you've developed 
are ones that readers all over the world will be able to relate to. And I think that that's really one of the great strengths of the book. Thank you. It's very nice. So I'm going to jump in here, listeners. Uh, this is a fascinating interview. Um, thank you, Carrie. Be thinking about your last question here. You're going to get a chance in just a second here. Um, listeners, we're going to jump over in just a moment to our Patreon channel uh, where Carrie and I are going to interview uh, Gina about uh, the writing trifecta, find out more about uh, her time in journalism, uh, how she wrote a book-length narrative nonfiction work, and then uh, talk about fiction and the differences between the three. It'll be uh, very interesting. Uh, that's at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. Uh, yeah, jump over there. You'll get that, plus a lot of other uh, exclusive content we give to uh, members who support uh, this free podcast where we help authors give voice to the written word. So, Carrie, I'm going to turn it back over to you. You got uh, another question to wrap it up with Gina today? Sure. Um, you use two terms, minders and monitors. Are they different or the same? Oh, no, I'd say that they're the same sort of thing. Okay, um, all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, yeah just interchangeable. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and uh, the the sense of uh, that that women were imagined as powerless, but in fact, they held a lot of power in their steadfastness that I think in my reading of the book and in my little bit of understanding about the Middle East um, is such a misconception that these women are powerless and that they often get uh, misunderstood by the men who feel as though they're lording it over them and they have control over them. Um, so anyway, uh, is that what your experience is, that they actually were more powerful than they appeared to be? Yeah, you know, I think um, in general, um, you know, that is the case all over the world for um, yeah. women in the Middle East and in the West. Uh, often, you know, um, the man in the situation might think he's in control, but not necessarily. Um, right. And there, there, yeah, there is that, um, you know, the, the goddess of the house is, uh, you know, how they call a, a housewife. That's a very outdated term in um, Iraq. But, um, you know, I think um, women all over the world are going to find similarities in these characters' lives. You know, they have to juggle work and home. Um, yeah. Most Iraqi women worked outside of the home. Um, they have to deal with rebellious teenagers. They fall off the diet bandwagon. So these are all things that we experience. And, um, you know, as Landis mentioned um, earlier, that was something that I was trying to show too, you know, that, um, of course, um, cultures are very diverse, very rich, um, but at heart, you know, the most important things we usually share. I grew up in an extremely small town in Western Australia, 1,500 people, no traffic lights. I went on to live in some of the biggest cities in the world, uh, all over the world, many different countries. And, uh, you know, I find that um, we've all got interesting stories to tell. We've all got so many things in common. And, you know, at the moment, 
we all feel so divided. Uh, we're sort of retreating into our own tribes. And that's why I feel fiction is so important because it gets you into somebody else's head, um, even if it's just a fictional character. But you can understand where someone else is coming from. Uh, you can see the different shades of, of you know, light and dark, of grey, and um, really it gives you an opening um, to look at things from a different perspective. And at the moment, I think that's something that is so valuable, you know, something that's not always possible in a tweet or on an Instagram post to convey that sort of complexity to get inside somebody else's head. And um, so that's why I'm, I'm hoping books never go out of, out of fashion and I'm sure they won't because they do give you that satisfaction of, you know, walking in somebody else's shoes if only, you know, through the pages of a novel. Yeah, I always think of fiction as being an emotional truth as opposed to this happened on Tuesday and the next thing happened on Wednesday. And it's that emotional truth which really speaks to, to your readership and um, makes them have an opportunity to reflect in that like a fiction is like a door that opens and you can walk into it and feel that same emotion, um, which is nice. Yeah, that's so true, Carrie. Yeah. So we could sit, we could talk, you know, all day or night long, depending on what part of the world you're in right now. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to save some of my questions I've got uh, that have been occurring to me for when we jump over to Patreon. Um, uh, uh, so listeners, come join us there. Carrie, uh, thank you for leading this discussion sure. today. And uh, Gina, thanks so much for being on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City Podcast Network.com.